Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Sandy. Now, again, um, if, this is, if you are new to Bayless, we are so glad that you are here. I'm, I'm going to ask that everybody, if you would, keep your Bibles out. It's one of the most important things you could do in a worship service like this is I want us to learn how to read our Bibles, to see these words. What you need is God's word and not mine. But again, uh, this last uh, portion of prayer, I recognize, is a big ask for many of us. How many of us, if we're honest, it just feels a little awkward? It's okay. So nonetheless, it's okay to risk that. But here's the thing. I want you, I want you to know that in the midst of this prayer, here's what should happen as well. Even if you find yourself to be introverted, even if this feels really strange, to take place, even if this is very different from churches that you've been a part of before, this should make you overwhelmingly excited. Do you, do you believe that because of what we just did, things change? Do you believe that because of what we did just did, things change? Not because we're twisting the arm of God, but because he asks us to pray and he promises to provide for his people. This is his work after all. We did not save ourselves. Friends, do you expect that he will continue to provide what is necessary so that we can follow him faithfully to the end? Do you believe that because we just prayed, the Lord is saying, yes, I am happy to provide. Now, we don't know what comes next. But friends, this should make you inordinately excited. And should make you excited every single Sunday that we do this, together to do this as well. I recognize not everybody around this is going to feel that way. But friends, we walk in with expectancy. We walk in with with eagerness to see, God, what will you do next? Our eyes are on you. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, which is a bit of a downer passage today, isn't it? I am so excited to finally get into this passage. Two weeks ago, we introduced it. Obviously, um, unexpectedly, I was not here. I was missing you quite a bit. My family was at home, um, and uh, and uh, my ki- couple of my kiddos uh, got COVID. It seems like everybody has COVID these days. We're trying to keep you as safe as we can. We do want to encourage you as you do come. Some of the things that we are asking is if you wear a mask to and from your seat as you arrive. Again, this is, we're in some strange times. Do want to keep you safe. But in the midst of this, our family was down for the count, we, and we really did miss you. I, I want you to know, our, I, I love being your pastor genuinely. I love this church, and it grieves me not to be with my family, and it's just so good to be back. In Exodus, we kicked off two weeks ago, nonetheless, 
um, and uh, did an overview. And um, by the way, didn't Matthew Bryant do such a fantastic job? I'm just so grateful for my brother. He's been a good friend of mine um, for some time. We often pray together for both of our churches, and he's at a church that is in South City as well, Church of the Redeemer, an elder candidate there. But he just did a fantastic job. But we're going to finally be in the first verses of Exodus when we gave an overview of Exodus 1 through 15 two weeks ago. And I, again, want you to keep your Bibles open, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22, a whole chapter. And we're going to be going through large portions of the Scripture as we uh, go through Exodus over the next few weeks. And so I want to point you to a bookmark that we've provided out at the table here. Um, that is uh, a, on the back hand, so on the front hand side, it has ways you can pray during this 40 days of prayer. It has the schedule for Saturday morning prayer as well. But on the back, you're going to find a sermon schedule um, that we are on track on still, um, and that you are going to uh, that allows you to read the passage before you come on a Sunday, so hopefully this isn't your first time reading it, especially for those of us who have not, are very unfamiliar with this story, but as well as for those who might consider yourself to be familiar, I would, expect, I, I would ask that you would spend extra time as before, before you come on a Sunday. Come with your questions, come with the things you're eager to look into, um, but nonetheless, I do, we do want to help us as we're going to be looking at larger portions, making some broader observations, particularly about God and his work of rescue. But um, today, again, I, this, uh, this book, to set some of the landscape, why we're in Exodus, it is the second book in your Bible. It is the second part of really a five-part series, you could say, uh, a larger book called the Pentateuch, which... Um, Many scholars, and I am also convinced, uh, was uh, stitched together and in large part written by Moses himself, delivered to the people of Israel as they were preparing to enter the promised land. This land that had been promised to Abraham, that they had been removed from in the period of time that we're going to look at here as they were in Egypt, and now we're returning home to, giving them this, again, five-part book to help this generation do what their, their uh, forefathers, their fathers and mothers did not, which is fear the Lord and obey him. And so nonetheless, in Exodus, we find one of the most important events in the entire Bible, let alone the Pentateuch, um, an, an event that, uh, from which the book gets its name. The book of Exodus is about the most significant act of rescue God has ever worked on behalf of his people prior to the cross of Jesus Christ, the Exodus, leading them from bondage, from slavery in Egypt to freedom, to a land where he would be with them and they would be his people. It's impossible to read the Old Testament, in fact, without finding it constantly referring back to this event, building its argument upon the Exodus as what made them God's people in an even uh, fuller, more robust way. They would always be his redeemed people from this moment forward. And it sets the expectation of what Jesus would fulfill in a new exodus we find through his cross and resurrection. But why are we spending time in books, a book like this one? We could say that it's because the events of this book are so critical to understanding the rest of your Bible, and so we want to help you grow as students of the Bible to understand this. It's certainly true. But as we pointed out a few weeks ago, and as we, I just pointed out before our time of prayer, we are in a season as a church where we, are, where we need to see and to cling to what Exodus reveals about God himself. Yes, we're in a season where we're aware of our needs, that they outmatch us. They do not outmatch our God. And today we want to see what is true about him, a God we can trust. More than ever, we need to know that God knows us, that God leads us, and that God saves us. That we might not walk in fear, even though many might have doubts and hesitations. Many questions, as I do. But in, that we might not walk in fear, but in faith. A faith that is grounded not in who we are or in our potential and resources, but in who God is and the promises he has made for us and accomplished in Christ. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. We're getting to the end of the Exodus. We're now here at the beginning. After all, it doesn't begin with rescue, does it? This passage is 
if you're reading, uh, again, if you're reading these for the first time, I encourage you, again, to look at these verses. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse as you go through these pages until we find one of the most one of the darkest periods in Israel's history as they were slaves in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. It begins with why the exodus was needed. And if we're honest, this chapter actually raises some very significant questions about God himself and what it means that he is a sovereign God. It raises some questions about where God is in the midst of our personal pain and in the midst of public injustice and what God could possibly be up to. What does it look like to hope in the power and goodness of God when our circumstances seem to indicate the opposite? To answer that question, I want to consider our passage in two parts together. First, I want to consider a suffering people, and then second, I want to consider their sovereign God. But let's consider the first, the suffering people in question. We have to set the stage again a little bit of what's going on. Specifically, we need to know a little bit about who these people are. After all, they weren't always slaves. The people called the Hebrews here, or the people of Israel. Exodus 1 begins with a list of names. Eleven sons of a man named Jacob, who are brought there by another of his sons named Joseph. In verse 1, tells us they were brought to Egypt by Joseph, who at that time was the prime minister of the land, second only to king, the king himself. But that's a story for a different time. We're not going to get into Joseph today. The story, though, reaches actually much further back than these 12 brothers and their father, Jacob. It actually reaches back to Jacob's grandfather, a man named Abraham. You see, through uh, Abraham, God promised, God intervened in human history. Uh, He unveiled a long-laid plan of rescue through which human beings would experience intervention in their long, ongoing rejection of him. Uh, sin that had fractured the world and left it broken, unable to be repaired by us, only made, we only made it worse. In the midst of all of that, what was growing horror of what was, the world was becoming because of sin, God chose for himself a people, a family through Abraham that would be, for, be his. He would be their God and he would be their people and He would rescue them. He would preserve them. He would make them great, not simply for their own sake, but as God promised in Genesis 12, verse 3, in you, speaking of this family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This would be the rescue plan for the entire human race, would be coming through this family. It's why they're so important. However, this people... To experience God's presence was destined for a land, a promised land, where they would enjoy all that it meant to have God as their God. A land that Exodus will soon describe as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And even though they had once seen this land and uh, once lived in this land in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's time, even then they were only sojourners in it. And they were very, very much outnumbered by the other inhabitants. I mean, seriously, did you, did you catch how many people moved to Egypt in these first few verses? Seventy people soaking wet? Not exactly what you would call a nation, let alone one that could inherit a land that God had promised. Driven now from this promised land by a brutal worldwide drought to a new land clinging to the assurance that this was all still in God's plan, clinging specifically to a promise that God had given Jacob before they had packed their bags and went to Egypt. He says, and God says in chapter 46, verse 3 of Genesis, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And at first... It seems that Egypt would not be that bad. It seems they enjoyed quite a period of peace 
and wealth in Goshen where they moved. Not only was Joseph widely respected, again, second in command, but their protection as those who were related to Joseph became a matter of public policy as the Hebrews were left to themselves. They were given legal protections. And it became, again, a matter of political policy that the Hebrews were let alone to tend Egypt's flocks and herds in the grazing lands of northwest Egypt. And there they grew. In fact, verse 7, the Hebrew reads something literally like, As for the Israelites, they grew. They were fruitful. They swarmed. They increased. They got more powerful, more and more, and the land was filled with them. This idea of this overflowing family from what once were only 70 you have to wonder if they would have ever found a reason then to leave Goshen. But in the space of just three verses, all this changes. As the author tells us of a new king, a new pharaoh who has come to power, one who did not know Joseph. And it turns out, based on the history of this time, that he may have good reason to not know Joseph. You see the events here may have come at a time the pharaohs that Joseph served, which may have been the Hyksos, for those of us who want to geek out about that kind of stuff, were expelled from Egypt. These pharaohs were actually known to be foreigners, even at the time of Joseph. And so these pharaohs, when they were rid from Egypt, Egypt later in their record sees this as a point of national pride. They finally got the Hyksos out, the pharaohs that Joseph had served. And it is likely then, now having gotten rid of these foreign kings, that a prejudice towards foreigners would have run high as this king comes into power, who desired to distance himself not only from this previous administration, but from everyone who had served him. In other words, this king not only did not know Joseph, why would he? Why would he care to know who the prime minister uh, was of the foreign power he just sent packing? All he saw now in that people in Goshen, that foreign, not-to-be-trusted people, was a threat. And you can hear it in the language, can't you? I mean, listen to these words that the pharaoh speaks to his people. It's as if he says, again, expanding them a bit, those people, those people of Israel, they're not Egyptian. Can't you see what, it's, what a risk it is to Egypt to allow them to grow unchecked? And notice his exaggeration. Don't you see? They are simply too many and too mighty for us. Again, who knows what might happen if a people like this, these foreigners, these non-Egyptians, these people who are not like us, if they sided with our enemies. We have, we have no choice but to act if we're going to get them under our control. They have left us no choice. We have to think of Egypt first, don't we? I wish we could say that this kind of attitude is unique in human history. But I think we all know that it isn't. In fact, it doesn't take much for reading these verses carefully to stoke the prejudice of the Egyptian people against them. Nor does it take much to get the Hebrews' oppression to make it a matter of public policy, to make it laws on the books. A policy that doesn't just last for one pharaoh, but if, indeed, the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years, as Exodus will assume, probably this policy is passed down pharaoh after pharaoh after pharaoh. After all, verse 12 tells us at that point, all of the Egyptians were in dread of the people. This isn't just pharaoh's private prejudice, but one that is shared among the masses. Which gets at the heart of prejudice, I actually think. You see... The reason that prejudice exists, whether it's due to someone's race 
or status or gender or clothes or education or accent or religion. The reason people don't just size other people up but make sweeping assumptions about them based on their skin color, based on their burqa, based on their bank account, their age or their political party. Make sweeping, the reason people make sweeping assumptions about what those things, these external things reveal about someone's character actually has a great deal to do with what we fear and even more importantly with what we love. You see, the only reason we become afraid, I want you to think about it, why is it we become afraid in our lives? It's because someone or something we love is threatened, or we think it is. Something that we cannot imagine losing. And this can be real or imaginary, but nonetheless, fear can be powerful when we no longer feel safe, when our life feels no longer like it's in our control. Something deep within us shouts, no! Go away, stop. And it doesn't take much to transfer those fears and insecurities to people. Sometimes an entire group of people. Life feels a bit more in our control, you see, if we can know at a moment's glance who I can and can't trust. Over time, people can even find themselves willing to believe almost anything about those people they perceive to be a threat, unconsciously collecting more and more evidence for why their distrust is justified, why those people really are not worth trusting. It's why people swallow lies about someone's beliefs and conduct without even realizing it. It's why people are more prone to doubt someone based, again, on their accent or skin color. It's why they make up slurs and names for people who are different than them. They're easier to dismiss if they somehow feel less than human. And somehow it makes us feel all the more safe. The thing is, this kind of prejudice doesn't even have to be intentional. In fact, it rarely is. And it does not relinquish its hold very easily. Fears have become a way, can become, they have a way of becoming, I should say, factories for scapegoats and snap judgments. Fears have a way of making us willing to believe almost anything so that we can feel safe once again, so that we can know who we really can trust. Fears can even make us justify slavery and slaughter. Friends, I... Again, this isn't limited to just the Egyptians. Imagine if you ask the average Egyptian, according to this passage, what they thought of the Hebrews, they would have figured everyone thought the same. But then just look at the history of our own nation and our treatment of African and Native American people. I realize it's easy to assume we would have never let the things that happened in our history to people, like African and Native American people, it's easy to assume that we would have never allowed those things to happen. It's easy to assume that if we were there in their shoes, we would have said no. We would have surely been on the right side while our city was selling black men and women on the steps of our city courthouse. But fear can make modern people just as wicked. The Egyptians weren't the only ones to be hostile toward the foreigners and the immigrants, viewing them in fear and mistrust. And again, think of the reasons they would have felt fearful. Blaming those immigrants for taking their jobs, their wealth, their political control. Does that sound like present conversation today? Do you know that's the story of our Nepali friends? the ones who worship here on Saturday mornings over in our chapel building. I don't know if you know much of their history as refugees, but they were kicked out of Bhutan in the 1990s. Again, here at the 1990s. Where were you in the 1990s? 
They were kicked out of Bhutan after the government in Bhutan adopted a public one-nation, one-people policy, imprisoning and evicting 100,000 Nepali people, who they now saw as a threat to the culture and political dominance of their nation. They saw the Nepali people, who they had invited as workers, now to be a threat to the people of Bhutan. Doesn't that sound like Exodus? And today, the Uyghur people, the Uyghur Muslims in China, are being systematically killed right now. Uyghur families are being forced to face forced sterilization and being sent to concentration camps that are very much like those in Nazi Germany, and that's in 2022. Why? Because the Chinese Communist Party sees the Uyghur Muslims as a threat to their way of life. And to get even closer to home, we have to think of the ongoing effects of racial prejudice in our country, particularly against black and brown people. Prejudice, we have to assume, that did not die out with the abolition of slavery and Jim Crow laws. And today of all days, which I don't know if you're familiar of what today many Christians celebrate, but today is Right to Life Sunday. We have to think about the ongoing injustice of abortion. Speaking to abortion for a second, I have to say that I realize that that issue may be enormously personal for many. I've been a pastor long enough to know that perhaps there are those even in this room who have had an abortion themselves or counseled those who have. It may have been the most difficult decision that you've ever faced. Still, I want, I want us to hear three of the most common reasons that women cite for why they were pursuing an abortion according to the Guttmacher Institute. It's not a faith-based institute, but these from surveys, the three most common reasons for why a life of the unborn would be terminated. Number one, concern for or responsibility to other individuals. Number two, the inability to afford raising a child. Number three, belief that a baby would interfere with work, school, or the ability to care for dependents. These three reasons are real-life challenges, and I don't intend to dismiss them at all. And Christians have to take them into account if they are truly to be pro-life and not just anti-abortion. But I also want to point, and I also want to point out that if you have had an abortion, or counseled someone to get one. There is forgiveness and healing found in Christ. Yes, abortion is a great and terrible wrong. The Bible will not allow us to see it any other way. But God receives anyone who would come to him for forgiveness. He will dissolve their condemnation and cover their shame. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Still, for all the most common reasons that are given for abortion, in those three that are just mentioned, did you notice a common factor in them? Fear. Fear has a way of making us do the unthinkable. We can become so clouded with the threat that someone or something poses to my life, my future, my safety, my security, be it real or imagined, that we can become willing to do what I never thought I would do. Especially when it becomes a matter of popular opinion. And as a result, fear has led many of us, I should say, led our culture, just in the United States, to terminate 62 million human lives since Roe versus Wade in 1973. Every year since then, nearly 860,000 lives will not be here by the end of this year. And this industry, if you study the statistics, it preys upon the poor and the vulnerable. Friends, whether it's talking about refugees or racism or abortion, I get it. I get that it's difficult to talk about. And I realize for many of us, this is the last thing we want to hear preached from a pulpit. It may even feel off limits. We would rather spend our time not thinking about these things. 
After all, we might even think, yes, these are real issues, but what can someone like me do? According to the Bible, friends, though, after the fall, injustice, we need to say, and Christians should be the first to say this, injustice as a result of the fall becomes a part of the fabric of everyday life. It should not surprise us even as it should grieve us. And over time, if we're to take Egypt's example seriously, injustice has a way of becoming systemic, weaving its ways even into laws and systems. After all, remember, this is not just Pharaoh's prejudice against the Hebrews. He made it a matter of public policy, requiring all Egyptians to follow him. A policy that was passed again, Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh to Moses until hatred of the Hebrews became law of the land. Is it really such a stretch then to think that injustice, even injustice that becomes of a systemic nature, is it really such a stretch to say that that might show up closer to home? Is it possible that injustice isn't just something we experience, but something we can contribute to, even unintentionally? After all, how many Hebrews may not have necessarily, dis- I mean, sorry, how many Egyptians may not have necessarily disliked the Hebrews? They may even even said, I have Hebrew friends, but nonetheless did nothing to defend them. It's one of the reasons that the entire land of Egypt will suffer under the plagues to come and not just Pharaoh. There's a lot of discussions today about power, about who has it, about who deserves it, Assuming that power always results in something like this. Now, the Bible will not share many of our modern assumptions about power, even as it does not dismiss it as necessarily corrupt. The Bible still, interestingly, is very honest about what happens when power is grasped by ego and fear, and all the covert and overt violence it can work. Even so, the the Bible is honest about the one who truly holds power, God himself, and it is honest about who he sides with. You see, our God, according to the Bible, sides with the vulnerable, sides with the oppressed, sides with the millions of silent voices suffering abuse and violence, particularly the people he has committed himself to, whose anguish might have never been noticed or heard. If injustice is recognized by anyone and called for the evil that it is, it is by God himself. God sees it and does not call it good. When it seems like no one else hears, God does. And he is the certain and stern defender of those who are in harm's way. Which brings us to the next point, our sovereign God. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Shakespearean play uh, Macbeth. How many of you ever had to read this in maybe high school or school? Um, There's a movie that just came out of it. I, I... I, uh, I don't know that I can recommend it from the pulpit, but nonetheless, I've not seen it. But Macbeth, nonetheless, is a tragedy. It is a really horrible story, okay, like many of um, uh, Shakespeare's plays. But it is about a brave general who, because of a prophecy that was made about him, a prophecy that he would become king, specifically king of Scotland, uh, becomes king, but becomes king by murdering the current king and taking the Scottish throne for himself. Um, Even as he is racked with guilt over this, the deaths actually don't stop there. But in Macbeth, Macbeth and his wife are forced to kill even more people in their paranoia to protect themselves from suspicion, desperate to hold on to the crown. After all, they were called to this. It was promised he would have the crown, and by any means necessary, he will keep it for himself. You see the connection between fear and injustice in that play? Even so, uh, civil war erupts in this play, and even Lady Macbeth is lost. She dies, and Macbeth is left reflecting 
not on her, just on her death, but on life and death itself, and gives us some of the most important lines in all that Shakespeare has ever written. Listen to these lines. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Life's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is that true? Is life a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Given all the suffering and evil that seems bound up with our existence, friends, if that was our only evidence, it might seem so. Have you ever wondered, I mean, does God, does anyone actually see what's going on here? Have you ever wondered, can things ever hope to be different? Have you ever wondered, God, where are you? That really is the question we have to ask when it comes to the suffering of Israel, is where is God in all of this? After all, Exodus chapter 12 tells us that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years before they were led in the Exodus itself. As the ratchet of Pharaoh's ruthlessness tightened generation after generation, where is God? Why Why should these people have to suffer like this for so long, especially if they are God's chosen and precious people? Did you notice that God isn't even mentioned until the end of this section by name, as if to emphasize his apparent absence from it all? I have to tell you, the Bible offers no pat answers when it comes to suffering, even as it's very honest about the injustice that we can face and see and the bitter state that injustice has left his people in. The Bible doesn't give pat answers for your suffering either. I don't know how many people I have had to tell when it comes to why God allowed that thing to happen in that way. I don't know. As commentator Alec Moitier puts it, experience without explanation, adversity without purpose, hostility without protection. That is how life will always appear for the earthly people of God. And yet, even in this passage, even when God seems to be hidden, we find God is at work through it all. In three ways, in fact. We find God working in secret ways through ordinary obedience for final rescue. In secret ways through ordinary obedience for final rescue. And that's what I want to consider before we close today. First, I want to consider that God is working in secret ways. I mean, just consider all the lengths that Pharaoh has gone to try to keep the Hebrews under his control, to keep them from growing in strength, to suffocate their size and their strength. He conscripted them into forced labor as slaves. He made them perform both field and brickwork, which, which would not have only uh, been exhausting, but would have broken up families uh, to travel to the cities that they had to build on their own. And it would have wore even the strong down, let alone the weak and sick. It would have worn them down under relentless burdens. There is no break for the slave. As verse 14 tells us, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard service. This combination of poverty and hard labor was probably not just to discourage them, but given what Pharaoh does next, it may have been intended to kill them off. And still, despite all of this, what does our passage say in verse 12? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. In other words, no matter what Pharaoh tried, the Israelites continued to grow in size and strength. And we have to assume, so did the Egyptians fear. What does this mean? Is this, why did this happen? Why did they continue to grow? Is it because you can't keep a good man down? No, it, we have to assume that what's going on here is more than that, more than human explanation. It's something supernatural. Even as God has not been named yet in this passage, even though he has not shown up in some of the more showy miracles we're going to see, no, wa- no rivers are turning to blood, no frogs are in the beds, 
We don't have any of this yet, but we must say that God is still at work way before he intervenes in the Exodus. In fact, it's perhaps not even fair to say that God intervenes at all. That's not all that accurate, because God is always at work, according to the Bible. He is never wringing his hands, waiting for the right moment to step in. God is never not working. Now, sometimes God is working in overt, upfront, and impressive ways, while at other times God is working in hidden, subtle, and often apparently confusing ways. But God is never not working. He is at work on behalf of those he loves in a million secret and ceaseless ways, and that includes you. Romans 8 gives us this assurance. This is why Paul, later in the New Testament, can put it this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this doesn't mean that everything we experience, friends, is good, or that Every cloud has a silver lining. But it does mean that even in dark and evil times, God is at work in secret and ceaseless ways to work evil and its purposes against itself. That only his purpose might win. And one of the key ways that God turns out to be through the ordinary obedience of those who fear him. Leads to the second, God is working through ordinary obedience. And for this, we need to consider two women named Shipra and Pua, who likely supervised a much larger group of Israelite midwives, even though they're the only midwives that are mentioned here. The size of Israel at this point is too much for two women to take care of. But likely these older supervisors, spokesmen for, spokeswomen for the Midwives are responsible for helping to bring Jewish babies safely into the world. But when Pharaoh's plan of slave labor didn't work to keep the Hebrews down, he makes a new and rather nasty plan, asking, or more likely bribing and coercing, these two agents of life to become agents of death instead. Isn't that how our enemy works too? Turning God's people against one another? to do his dirty work for him, only they refused, at great risk, not only to their careers, but to their very lives. These senior supervisors chose not to obey. Why? After all, they certainly would have had every reason to fear Pharaoh, but verse 17 tells us they feared God more. Now this, of course, brings up the question about their apparent lie, or at least their intentional deception in verse 19, which I have to tell you has sparked a ton of scholarly debate on the subject that we just don't have time to go into today. Regardless of whether this actually represents a lie, or whether lying under circumstances like this, where someone else's life or safety is on the line, whether or not that's permissible, we don't have time to get into today other than to say that God favors these women regardless He gives babies to those who, we have to assume, could not have them on their own. Why? Because they chose to use their power and their opportunities available to them to deny evil and to choose the good, to choose life, even at great risk to themselves. Notice also that their names are recorded for us. We know who these women are, and not even Pharaoh gets that privilege Because Moses intends for these two women to be examples for us. Friends, I realize when it comes to the sufferings and injustice of the world, we can feel powerless, let alone powerless for the things that we face in our personal lives. It can be easy to disengage, to turn off the news, to stop our ears and limit our concern to those who are in our immediate circle. But what if Shipra or Pua would have done that? What if out of a desire to keep themselves safe, they covered their eyes and did what they were being pressured to do? With as many children that would have died during childbirth already during this time, they may have even been able to hide it. But their fear of God led them to act, to use their positions and 
and influence to protect, not destroy, to take responsibility for the injustice in front of them, even though they may have had every reason not to. Friends, when it comes again to the sufferings and injustices of the world, Christians must care. Why? Simply put, because God cares. And he defends the vulnerable. He draws near them. As John Piper puts it, Christians must care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And all of us have been entrusted with some measure of power, influence, or access. Now, you may not feel very influential, may not feel very powerful, but all of us have access and influence in some circles, in some relationships. We have some opportunities that others do not, and we have been entrusted them to use them for good. It may be to defend others against slander and slurs. It may be to defend the life of the unborn and to serve mothers who are contemplating the unthinkable. It may be advocating for more just laws, policies, and systems. It may mean standing up for those who you supervise. It may mean serving the vulnerable and the poor at the expense of your own time and comfort. But all of us are entrusted with certain opportunities and relationships. God has intentionally put them in front of us that we might be agents of life and not death. The very means, in fact, by which our sovereign God works. Did you notice that? That God preserves his people, he makes them prosper, and how does he do so? Often through the ordinary or seemingly ordinary obedience of his people. As Ephesians 2.10 puts it, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But last, God is working all of this toward our final rescue. All of this, of course, the rescue of the midwives fails, doesn't it? As noble as it is, the tyrant who would not give up so easily found a workaround and the cruelest act yet as he asks for these babies to be drowned in the River Nile. We'll look more at this next week, but this reveals the Hebrews' need for an exodus that they could not save themselves, no matter who stood up to Pharaoh's injustice. They need an exodus in which God would work all this terrible evil against itself. They needed an exodus in which it would be not their babies, but their enemies turned to drown. They needed an exodus again when the enemy's evil would be worked against itself. But even more so, this reminds us of where the exodus points and the final exodus fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who, like the midwives, obeyed his father, and not just at great risk to his life, but at the cost of it, suffering ultimate injustice firsthand. He knows its blows, refusing to use his power for selfish gain. Why? So that he might, in enduring injustice, undo injustice that he might make the greatest enemy's plans to work against the enemy himself. And even more importantly, that he might secure an even greater rescue than the one that Moses will lead. A rescue from the slavery and abuse of sin and even from death itself. And he would do so, importantly, not just for the innocent sufferers, but for the guilty ones, crying out on behalf of even his enemies, who had hung him there on the cross, suffering for his abusers, that he might secure for them and anyone who would confess faith in Jesus Christ, his kingdom, where injustice will be no more. Again, friends, the Bible gives us no pat answers for suffering and injustice. In fact, so often we must humble ourselves under God's words to Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But the gospel gives us the assurance that these words are not only true, but that we're going to see them to be true in the end. That our God is working 
right now through your average and ordinary obedience for your final rescue. And all of that is guaranteed by what Christ has already done on our behalf. Then I want to spend our next few moments reflecting and in prayer. Lord, we come again as those who, if we're honest, um, just it's uncomfortable to talk about these things. The Bible will step on all of our toes and perhaps has done more so today, including mine. Would we hear your words so that we would do what your people have always done to stand with their God on behalf of those who are oppressed and vulnerable. That we would extend love as those who have received it, particularly in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ who do not believe it, even to our enemies, even to those we think have unloving stances, would we love and extend the news of love to them And Lord, we pray for King Jesus to return, to rule over his kingdom where injustice will become but a memory and all tears will be wiped away. There will be no more slaves or slave masters. Lord, we long for that day and we need wisdom for what it is like to live now as your servants, regardless of what the times hold. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake, our hero. Amen.